Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you for coming to our session on how AWS automates uh, internal compliance at massive scale using AWS services. We're uh, very uh, happy to be here, and we're really glad to see how much interest there is. I'm Chad Wolf. I'm the Director of Risk and Compliance for AWS. And I'm Sarah Duffer, Director of Security Assurance Automation. Okay, so um, I'm really happy to see how many people are here, but then I realized that the Man in the High Castle uh, premiere is right after this, so now I know you're all just taking your compliance lumps, and then you're going to have prime seats, so I get it. Um, so... Um, uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, basically, we're going to take you some of the lessons learned that we've gone through in transforming our own, like, traditional kind of small-scale uh, compliance uh, program into one that's like a highly automated, highly reliable, and hyper-scaled security control uh, environment. Um, I know that many of you are probably, and I looked at the list of everybody that was here, that, that's coming, and it, it's, you know, to this session, it's like every industry I can think of, uh, banking, healthcare, um, manufacturing. Uh, you got, uh, we've got a, a really wide uh, range of people that are here, and the great thing about that is, and really the thing that I'm realizing is that, you know, we're all challenged with kind of the same thing. If you're really challenged with uh, doing controls, automating controls, and making sure that you have a secure environment. Uh, we're all dealing with kind of the same things. One, we're all challenged with this idea of scale. You know, we're, you know, companies are growing. We have to figure out how to uh, work on risk management and how we do compliance and how we do audit and how we keep up with the business. Uh, another thing I think we're all um, working on is how to become less the you know, the department of no to the department, the department of yes, and here's how you can do that. Um, we're also working on getting uh, controls implemented with rock-solid reliability and consistency. We all have this compounding problem that we're operating more IT, we're adding, adding more controls, we're doing more uh, audits all the time, and the challenge is, is that... Um, uh, is, that, is the same, even if your subject matter and your scope is a little different. Another thing we're all, uh, we're all also working on, my team specifically is working on some of the sim similar things that you're working on, and that is how to deal with a hybrid environment, hybrid you know, cloud and non-cloud environment. We have, obviously, the cloud, and then we have those systems that deliver the cloud, so those, aren't, those are equivalent to on-prem systems for us. So, we have the same challenge uh, for uh, scaling that control environment. And the third thing is kind of we're all desperate to automate. You know, we have to do more with less people. We can't grow our staff. We can't, you know, infinitely grow our staff or, or propor even proportionally grow our staff. I mean, if, if, you, if you are in a compliance or security uh, function, you'll know that we're always being asked to do more with less. Um, We've got to automate, and we've got to use those tools that are available to us. But it's not go buy every tool we have or uh, every tool there is or hope that there's, like, one tool that's a silver bullet. There's actually no app for that. I wish there were, but uh, uh, there isn't. So in this, this is the area that we have the most growth and innovation in the security and compliance space. It's for, for everyone, really. Um, this session is kind of a one-of-a-kind uh, first-time first session uh, in that um, in, in the past years, this is my fifth reInvent, um, and in the past years, we, I always talked about things like how to be secure and compliant in the cloud um, and like how to do it, you know, what tools to use so you, the customer, can be uh, secure and compliant. But this year, there's just so many people that are having these sessions. They've got solution architects, professional services, industry specialists, partners, they're all doing these kinds of presentations, and so there's a lot of material there. So this, this year we decided to uh, go with um, uh, telling how we, um, we did our own, you know, how we transformed our own control uh, program, your compliance program. So I'm happy to see a lot of interest in this. Okay. Um, so what to expect from the session? We're going to give you 
we're going we're gonna to talk about how, it's not everything, but it's at least four examples of how we uh, dealt with massive scale in compliance. So we're going to talk about automated control mapping, uh, access management, change management, vulnerability management, and tell you how we're using AWS services in each of those, and then give you kind of lessons learned. I'm also going to interlace it with some bits of advice for how to approach it, you know, like the process for approaching uh, this kind of thing. Um, so, you know, you're not going to do the exact same things we're doing, but uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what, I, what I think are some, some key, you know, four general tips for, uh, for making this successful based on our experience. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about scale, uh, complexity, and, and security. Um, I don't really have to go into depth about the scale of AWS. Um, you know, we're operating, we have, we have you know, more than a million active customers in 190 countries, 38 availability zones, 63 edge points. We have this massive scale, um, and it's a giant computing environment that's growing very fast. We're very excited about it. But um, uh, the, the, the complement to this is that we have to have a very high bar for security. We can't, uh, we, we, we have to not only scale all that business, but we also have to scale our, our security uh, program. So I want to put a little bit of the scale and perspective of these, com these, these control programs. So um, let's just take like change control for, change control is a, for example, so change control, all these programs have a change control element and, um, you know, proper change control when done with, a, you know, it's authorized and tested change, rolled out in production, that's a that's a, a control that basically everybody uh, has to manage in some way or the other. Um, so let's take one instance, one control activity. So we may have a system, single system change that we need to roll out into the entire. Uh, maybe let's just say one region. Uh, one change might be pushed to say 10,000 uh, 10,000 hosts after it's been fully tested and authorized. So um, that might be in a single region and maybe over uh, a couple hours. So these 10,000 changes are actually 10,000 instances of that single control. Now, let's multiply that by, uh, well, let's talk about that's in a realistic, realistic life, day in the life of a single service team. A single service team, if you take EC2 or S3 or something, might, um, might uh, want to do um, maybe, let's say, seven changes in one, in one day. So that seven changes pushed to 10,000 hosts that's actually 70,000 instances of that change being, uh, being put into production. So when our auditors come in to do a test, they don't, they don't test the seven. They, they, they go to the system logs and look at the 70,000 changes and trace back from there to the authorized, uh, the authorized change record. So we're actually, for one team in one day, in one region, we might be doing 70,000 changes. Well, uh, that's for a single a single day, it's one example, but what about, uh, what about 365 days for 60 serv 70 services across 14 geographic regions worldwide? And that's just one control. So we're talking about a lot of instances of a control or evidence of a control that's being, uh, being put in the, or you know, that's evidenced in the system, in the system logs. Now, consider the number of our controls. So under these programs, we formally operate and formally test to 2,670 controls meeting 3,030 audit requirements. So we're talking about millions of instances of controls operated in one, like say, six-month SOC uh, report period. So combine that scale with the growth and complexity of what kind of certifications we have obtained and the ones we're committed to and the new ones we're signing up for. You know, this this is the this is the kind of scope of what my team, Sarah and my team, uh, what we have to handle. We have to monitor this. We have to make sure that all controls are being operated at 100% uh, accuracy and full, full controls being in place all the time. Um, also, it also shows that we, we simply cannot wait for the auditors to come in in order to audit. Like, if we waited for the auditors to come in to see if the controls are operating, uh, that would be ridiculous, and so what we have to do is we have to continually audit, besides the fact that we have 
auditors coming in uh, most of the year. So we don't, we don't like get ready for an audit and, oh, the auditors are coming, let's somehow get ready. We, we just are always, always ready. So it's a near impossible task to do really anything manual or anything that is not comprehensive and uh, ubiquitous. So let's talk about complexity for a second. Um, you know, our systems are big, and, and uh, like any large IT environment, it's complex. But are our systems more complex than, you know, some of your systems? Uh, maybe not, because the reality is we have to actually drive down a lot of that complexity in order to have reliable controls. So, um, uh, we wouldn't be able to automate anything. Well, there are differences in how the, how the service teams operate controls in some cases, but uh, the consistency in the automation is, is, uh, is, is the same. So um, we actually, our, our relative complexity might be lower, lower complexity than, say, a big, large enterprise that has like 2,000 applications uh, running uh, with multiple architectures. So I know some of you are like nodding your heads, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a common thing, but there's, there's a lot of complexity in controls and control environments. So you might be asking, how did we create consistency and controls needed for our huge scale? So our secret to success is expressed well in a book published by John Gall in 1977. Uh, whereas rule of thumb was made into now what we commonly call Gal's Law. So uh, Gal's Law is a complex system that works, is invariably, fa invariably found to have evolved from a simple system that worked. And then a complex system designed from scratch never works and cannot be patched to make, wor make it work. You have to start over with a working, simple system. Um, you know, on a personal note, uh, I, have, I have six kids, and when I tell people that, a lot of people say, oh man, that's crazy, six kids, that's insane. I have a colleague, Mark Ryland, who has nine kids, and everyone thinks we're insane, but the reality is we started one at a time, which is why I'm really, I feel sorry for people who have twins, because we started with one at a time, we had one at a time, and we had one, and then we made it work, and then we had another one, and then Right now, we have six kids. It's a complex dynamic, but the fact is that we can manage it, and it's a lot of fun because uh, we've been able to take something uh, very simple and expand it to six. So um, Gal's Law applies to me personally in that regard. But um, uh, uh, it, Gal's Law also explains things like the World Wide Web. You know, it started very simple, and now it's a big, complex system, or the blogosphere. But there are other systems uh, that that, that have been designed very complex, very complex thing at the beginning, and then ended up uh, uh, not being not really working. So, the uh, the thing, the idea here is to uh, to grow from from simple to complex, something that works. This is really the secret to our success as we as we've moved forward here is to make small things, simple things work, and then and then grow them out. So. Um, my first bit of advice is to start over in some ways. I mean, I know you're thinking, that's insane. I can't do that. I can't start over. But the reality is, if you're going to do, if you're going to move to the cloud and you're going to try, or even if you're trying to use AWS services to monitor your on-prem stuff, you should start uh, over in some ways and start simple and make, it, and make that work. Uh, a lot of times we, we deal with a lot of customers and they have a lot of problems retrofitting a lot of what they've are, they're already doing in their compliance program into uh, some big complex thing that works in AWS. So um, that, that I, I would recommend uh, doing that. I mean, AWS, can AWS handle complex uh, compliance programs? Absolutely, it absolutely can. But there's a lot of baggage in today's programs that you won't want to retrofit into uh, your AWS program. Um, my advice number two is, is complementary to the first one, that is implement an agile methodology and do it forever. So what I mean by that is that, um, you know, security and, compliance, security and compliance teams really should think about this. Now, if you don't know about agile, which I think probably everybody here does, but um, 
it's all about iterating successfully in a small, frequent, small and frequent deliverables rather than doing like a huge multi-year project with something at the end that, you know, the requirements may change over time. So um, the idea is to iterate quickly, fail fast, and get it done right in baby steps. If you don't know about this uh, or you want to know more about it, I recommend the book Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time. It's a Jeff, by Jeff Sutherland. Uh, I really like that book because... It not only talks about Scrum and, and, and doing active or uh, agile um, methodologies in coding, but it also talks about how you can apply that to other things like home renovation. You know, and he has an example of somebody doing that, uh, applying Scrum in, uh, in, in some contractors that came over to do some work on his, on his house. So, um, so start small and simple and make it a working system and then build it out using an iterative, customer-focused, agile methodologies. Methodology. Okay, so back to the topic. With this, with this huge scale and a complex system, we have a high, and a high secure var. We really have an impossible task if anything was manual. And good thing it's not because we automate and use our own cloud services to manage that scale and complexity uh, to and, and make the make the controls reliable. Um, so let me just talk about this real quick. Uh, I realize I'm burning more of your time, Sarah, than I expected. Um, the, uh, you know, we have a customized, kind of customer-centric approach to our program. Think about it. Like, six years ago, when we kind of, like, looked at, looked at what we had to build and what kind of I expected that was going to happen, I had to build it from scratch. You know, we started with the SAS 70 with, like, 40 controls or 38 controls. And now we have these 2,670 controls and all these auto requirements and 7,700 artifacts that we generate every year and things like that. So um, we, we, I, I stepped back and said, okay, what, what's important? What's really the key things that I'm going to need for this program? So some of the things I thought up were, uh, and we've implemented are, we carefully track customer success in this area. So we, we carefully you know, work with our customers to really understand what we need to have and what will make them successful. We focus on case studies. We focus on, uh, you know, as we deal with customers, we, you know, my, my team regularly interacts with customers for, for, for primarily that purpose, listening, understanding what they actually need so we can get the right certifications in place to, to make them successful. Um, our global reports, our reports are global reports. So I know a lot of companies like dice them up and do them for separate things. Like, so if you were, if the, the, you know, the problem with that is, if you're, if you're trying to get a view of all the controls operating globally, you have to go to multiple reports. Um, all of our reports are global. Uh, and if you need to understand the results of any audit, then you get a absolutely um, a comprehensive report. And then number three, we don't pursue every certification possible. I mean, uh, there is a there is a cost to uh, to every audit, not just in uh, money, but also, uh, you know, we're bringing in an external firm to to, and we're we're, we're disclosing, uh, you know, sensitive records to them, change control records, things like that. So uh, we don't go and just chase every certification that we possibly can. Um, and we're carefully trying to manage this transparency slash exposure uh, balance. So we therefore commission them only when there is a real value to be gained on behalf of our customers. Um, so advice number three, uh, three, objectively look at those requirements and build to that. Sometimes, uh, you know, with, like if you've got predecessors doing whatever for your, uh, you know, have built a, a compliance program or something, and you, you try not to let any of the balls fall. Um, at least as you're as you're working to move to the cloud, uh, you just uh, you should objectively look at your requirements and figure out what you're actually trying to do and build to that. And then uh, the fourth bit of advice is hire compliance automation engineers. Um, we have hired a team of engineers, you know, coders, developers. I mean, it sounds kind of crazy, and it's uh, it's actually really hard to recruit. You know. Not a lot of people in college say, oh, I think I want to go in, you know, the, the, their SDEs, they don't say, oh, I want to go into compliance. It just, nobody says that. Maybe there's some people who say that. Please come talk to me if that's your life goal. Um, but um, uh, the reality is that um, we've, we're doing something extremely complex, uh, automating controls and automating systems and um, making things, uh, making controls absolutely bulletproof is super, super challenging. Um, 
and it's kind of twice as hard to hire a compliance engineer as it is a security engineer, and security engineers are already very hard. So, um, but this has been the key to our success in scaling our work, absolutely. Um, and another, another, great sec, uh, another great thing about having uh, compliance engineers is we've built in the control monitoring to the point where you know, our, engineer, our service team engineers, they're operating 2,600 controls. Like, they don't even know it because it's like integrated transparently into what they're doing and how they're doing their work. And so that's another huge benefit for automation and, and having engineers on our team. Okay, so uh, as, part of, uh, as part of our uh, investment in that, I actually have Sarah here, who is the Director of uh, Security Assurance Automation, and she's gonna go through these four examples of how we use AWS uh, to automate our controls. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So two things I learned as we were practicing for this presentation. The first is I'm a pacer and I'm a talker. And secondly, when you're pregnant, you can't pace and talk. Otherwise, it sounds like I've run a marathon within about five minutes. So <laughs> hence the seats. I'm not sure his excuse, but hence the seat for me for this part of the presentation. So as Chad mentioned, I'm going to walk through these, these four specific controls, uh, these areas of automation that we actually executed upon. The key reason why I chose these four is that when um, six years ago when we started going down the path of building out this team, uh, we really started to look at the resources we needed uh, to build out a, a true security assurance team. Um, and I think Bill Shin, one of the security solution architects, uh, sums this up really well where he basically states that in this era you really need to have auditors who are able to read code and uh, engineers that can read regulations. Um, and that's really what we started seeking when we started building out this team. But these particular areas of automation, we uh, started diving into with the resources we had before we actually started having uh, more of our developer resources onboarding to the team. So uh, hopefully this will give you guys some ideas of what we do and how we use AWS um, and, and hopefully inspire you to be able to use AWS from a compliance team perspective too. So the first example I'm gonna walk through is automated control mapping. So this was really a scrappy side project that we uh, executed primarily to help us out of a scaling issue. So many of you out there have, if you're in any way involved in uh, compliance activities, you have at some point or other performed some level of compliance mapping, be that an internal control set to an external control set like your PCI or cross multiple control sets, or you have um, given that to some sort of external consulting organization to do the mapping for you, or you've taken it from out of the box, uh, some sort of control mapping. Um, any of you who have done that, no matter which part you've gone, you, which road you've gone down, it's extremely time consuming because you're really at the mercy of the individual that has mapped the control, primarily because it's open for their interpretation of how the, what the control says, how the control is, tested and how the control is actually implemented. And they need to have a knowledge of all three areas in order to be able to map effectively. And when it comes down to it, effectively, my mapping might be slightly different to the mapping that Chad might actually do. So uh, the output of this mapping exercise is also an Excel spreadsheet all too often. Um, and so this is one of the early issues that we were facing uh, from a major control mapping perspective as we we're mapping across you know, hundreds of programs across the globe. The second problem is something that many of you out there also probably face, which is uh, we have a lot of, we are a vendor to a lot of customers. And those customers, which are you guys, uh, ask us a, a lot of very good questions from a security perspective. Um, we receive those questions, hundreds of them daily, thousands of them weekly, in a format that can range from uh, your vendor risk management questionnaires that many of you are very familiar with. You know those questionnaires that have hundreds of questions that you have to respond to. We receive a lot of those. Uh, we also receive one-off questions uh, from email, directly from, from you guys. Uh, we receive them in client meetings, and customer meetings, uh, when we're inside in EBCs. Uh, we get them directly from our solution architects and our security solution architects. So we really needed to find a way that we could respond in a consistent manner to all of these questions, and also that we were not dependent on one or two individuals responding to every single one of these questions. So this really is 
this is an example of where we did, this is going to be very different from any of the rest of the examples I'm walking through, primarily because this example is really illustrating how we took um, effectively a, a very administrative team impacting task um, and we went about automating it. Um, and for the rest of the, the examples I'm going to give are going to be more focused from a control monitoring perspective. But I really wanted to show this because um, I think this really illustrates how your compliance teams, and in our case we called ourselves security assurance, again to try and make uh, from a hiring perspective, security assurance sounds much more fun than compliance. Um, we, we really want to be able to um, illustrate how you can, uh, you can utilize AWS for, for many different activities across your team. So the very first thing that we did um, is that we went ahead and collected the thousands of questions and responses that we've already provided to many of our customers. We spoke to all of our security SAs, um, and we spoke to all of our sales team, our solution architects. We collected all of that data. We also worked directly with our audit team and got from our audit team all of our control, our control information, how those controls are actually implemented, and we gathered that all together and then actually built an ingestion service uh, utilizing Amazon API Gateway and AWS Lambda, which effectively pulls all this information directly into Amazon Elasticsearch. Uh, so from an end user perspective, so from our customers, and when I say customers, this is all internal, this is all from um, the customers of this for us is our security SAs, our solution architects, um, and our sales team. And so from an internal perspective, um, you, are, uh, you get access via our internal website. Uh, this really is just a, uh, a UI. Let's scroll that one else. Sorry. Oh, just keep going. Sorry. Uh, that's a, an internal UI, which um, effectively just, you know, you put in your search criteria and you get back a response. Um, and, sorry, okay. Uh, and then using the same ingestion stack, what we're actually able to do is you put in your search criteria um, via API Gateway and Lambda, um, goes into Amazon Elasticsearch, which, uh, which effectively does some string, um, string similarity checks, text classifications, and then provides back the closest response to what it is you're actually looking for from a, from a question and answer perspective. And that allows from our side to be able to um, to provide very consistent answers and responses and was allowing us to, to, to scale. Now, from our perspective, the number of customers that we have don't traditionally impact the complexity of the compliance programs that we operate. This is a little different. Um, the number of customers we have dramatically increases, especially the increase in customers, dramatically increases the number of questions that we receive on a regular basis. So hence the reason for using AWS Lambda. So using Lambda, we effectively don't have any, we, we don't have uh, anything that's constantly listening to our internal website for, um, uh, for your search criteria. Effectively, Lambda, um, is, Lambda is triggered as soon as a search criteria is entered, that goes off and performs the search, and it comes back and renders the, the response to the end user. And, and that allows us to scale with the number of questions that we receive, because um, it's just basically Lambda functions that are scaling in order to perform this functionality for us. So, like I said earlier on, when we uh, initially built this, it was uh, built to address a very specific customer need, um, but it had a really very positive um, impact internally, and we, were, we have invested in it a little bit more. Um, and as we focused on it, we started looking in other areas of how we could innovate in providing information back to our customers, um, especially when it came to mapping controls and how we could actually provide control mappings back. So uh, we started looking at the Amazon machine learning capabilities, um, and uh, we very quickly failed, uh, and it did not work for us. And I think that's another example of why it is uh, so beneficial to be able to use AWS, um, and any team to be able to use AWS, but it allowed us to, to very quickly learn from our mistakes and actually has helped with innovation that we're, we're now working on right now. Um, so at the time, what we did was we took all of the questions, the responses, we took all of the control implementations, we performed extensive labeling, um, and we, we, we did the supervised training. And uh, we were discovering that we were having about a response rate of about 50% correct response rate to what it was that we were uh, putting in. And the reason, and 50% is, is, sounds good, but it's not good because effectively you have to read 100% of results to figure out what the 50% is, so it wasn't actually helpful for us. 
But what we actually discovered was that the more labels that we had, and from a compliance pers perspective, as you all know out there, we're really good from a compliance perspective to be able to get really detailed on the labels that we have, like you have your user access management controls, then you have your you know, password associated with it, you use your access controls, you're able to get very nuanced in what type of labels you're able to have in there. Um, and we discovered that despite the number of um, questions and responses that we had, we were, um, uh, we just simply didn't have enough for the number of labels that we actually had. So. Uh, it didn't work, but what it did do is it helped us identify what we need to do in the future. So what we did was, as a part of our user interface, we actually allow for feedback from our, our internal customers, our security SAs and our SAs. And they basically, based on our, uh, our, our text classifications that we're rendering to them right now, uh, they're telling us how close we are and what we're providing to them. And that information is then uh, categorized and then put back into our model so that we're continuously learning and, and hopefully in the future we'll actually be able to use that, that machine learning capability. So in addition to um, everything that we're doing from the technical implementation, this tool really is only as good as the data. Um, and the, the data needs to be extremely fresh. So uh, we have a dedicated uh, TPM, that's a technical program manager, um, who is continuously uh, evaluating um, any of the new questions and responses we might, be, uh, we might have that are, that are not in our tool, and any of new controls or control implementations, and we're updating that tool on at least a monthly basis, if not more frequently. From a resource perspective, how long did this take? So this took about four resources, about two and a half weeks to, to pull together. Um, out of that time, those, those four resources are um, a mix of resources. So there are technical program managers and a, um, a system security um, engineer. We also have a dedicated TPM, which I mentioned. Um, it took her about 147, I think, hours in order to do that initial quality control check and validation of putting all of the information into our tool. And then on a monthly basis, it's about 15 hours of her time to continuously do quality, uh, quality control on the, t on, the, on the tool. For us, it has meant it's, it's been a huge change for us because it's gone from a one-to-one -one response where it would be a lot of response over um, uh, you know, emails or phone calls or, um, and, and you know, there's a level of inconsistency there uh, to a one-to-many response, which is reusable and self-serve for a lot of our internal customers. So just to give you guys a quick look of what this looks like, this is, this is, uh, this is what the, the tool looks like. What you're looking here is someone has put in a search term around business continuity planning. Um, for anyone that's out there and you've heard me talk about what the problem is and, and you're taking a look at the user interface right now, you're probably thinking, well, we have this solved, we have a GRC tool. Um, we actually didn't go down the route of a GRC tool, primarily because the questions we receive are not in any way specific to controls. The questions we receive are very, in a lot of cases, very high level questions about security. So it's very much more along the lines of, um, you know, asking about user access management controls or, or things like that. So we really needed to have the ability to uh, perform extensive uh, searching uh, capabilities on keywords. So hence why we went down this path. So this is really the gold nugget, and this is what I love about this tool, and this is what saved a huge amount of time. This is actually the control mapping, um, and uh, unfortunately, the example that I have is slightly different than the example I gave previously. This is control mapping specific to physical security controls, but um, this is what saves a lot of time. So for any time that um, a search term is put in, and we render back specific information about whatever that search term is. So for example, in this case, it was physical security. We also respond back with every, every possible control that it could be related to, uh, to facilitate control mapping. And that control mapping then can be given back directly externally to, to you guys uh, to help illustrate not just what it is we do associated with business continuity or physical security or whatever the question happens to be, but also to be able to um, provide guidance as to how you're able to validate that yourselves through our various compliance reports. So some lessons learned we have from here is, number one, that mapping is a heavy lift. I mean, I, every single customer I talk to, especially software as a service providers or, or partners, um, have this, this issue with mapping or, or issue with, with um, uh, you know, questionnaires and, and uh, questions coming in. And so uh, even though it is a heavy lift to, to do that, and there's no one size fits all for everybody. Um, this is a, it's a cool bit of engineering and it can be done uh, in a way that'll, that'll help you with, uh, with, with all, the, all those kinds of things that you're getting, all the, all the um, 
the mappings that you need to you need to do. About granularity and specificity, they, they really matter. We've learned that control overlap and nuances of controls require a lot of careful attention. For example, data destruction and media destruction are not necessarily the same thing. And, um, you know, it's common that a requirement for control program A is, you know, is, is, uh, represents several in, in program B. So, for example, CIS top 20 controls is actually closer to about 150 FedRAMP controls. So you can't really have, uh, you have to be able to figure out all those nuances and respond accordingly. Um, and then we had a higher return than expected. We, we, we thought we were just going to do this for internal use cases for mapping, um, but, uh, and, and it was initially to answer these questions for uh, these, these questionnaires. But then we found the AWS service teams and some other customer-facing roles needed this ad hoc search capability in order to answer questions and like dis have discussions with customers about this without having to have a, um, a compliance or security specialist uh, on, you know, in in the in the room. So moving on to access management, um, and this is where I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about what we, from a compliance team perspective, this is really what we do from a day-to-day -day basis uh, around control monitoring. So for access control, this is uh, one of the critical foundation controls that not just us, but you also have in place within your organizations. Um, we operate from the principle of least privilege, as do I'm sure all of you. Um, and as all of you are aware, uh, there is no silver bullet to actually solve this problem. You've got to make sure that you have very much a layered control approach, so you have both your preventative and your detective controls in place. Today I'm going to walk through very quickly the preventative controls because I really want to focus on the detective con controls because that's really what our, our team is about and, and, and how we actually monitor the environment on a day-to-day -day basis. This is a really good example of where we operate in an environment very similar to many of you out there whereby we um, have controls that need to operate um, across our critical assets that uh, run the cloud, as in, I suppose for use of a better word here, it's sort of like our on-prem our on version. Um, and we also operate controls that are across our um, on-the-cloud assets, um, so our, our sort of in, on AWS. Um, so uh, I hope this is a good example for you of, of how you're able to, to monitor both, both sides of that. So diving um, a little, just very quickly into our preventative controls. Um, so we have critical assets as from, from day one, uh, all users, very similar to everyone out there, has access, complete minimal access. You have to ask explicit permission in order to get any type of level of access within, within AWS. Um, so you ask for this access through our rules-based permission management system. And so, uh, all of our assets, be they uh, specific uh, servers, de network devices, uh, objects, whatever they happen to be, um, they're all managed through POSIX and LDAP groups. And we have a rules engine that uses a hierarchy of rules to evaluate whether a user should actually be given access uh, to a specific group. So, for example, uh, we could have a rule out there that says all full-time software developers that report to Chad Wolf in Seattle can have access to Group A. Or um, it could be all employees of a certain level uh, who are in, um, in uh, Seattle can have access to this particular group. This particular group has access to these particular uh, assets. So, um, oh, yeah, one other thing around the rules-based permission uh, management. Um, every, uh, every 20 minutes, we actually do the revalidation of, of, of the uh, rules there. And the reason for that is that we want to be able to identify if anyone has moved teams and that has a violation of whatever the rule happens to be that's in place. Um, and the reason for 20 minutes is because um, it simply takes a very long time for access to propagate across our environment. So um, the 20-minute window is, is still within the time frame uh, by which you can, you can validate and take action whether that person should actually have access. On a quarterly basis, we perform baseline review of the actual rules themselves. And then we move into what our team is responsible for, which is the near real-time validation. And so how this actually works is every 15 minutes, uh, we, we do validation of the current permissions across the entire AWS environment. Um, it 
like I mentioned, it takes greater than 15 minutes to actually uh, propagate all of those permissions across our entire environment. So um, how we actually do this is what I want to dive into right now. Um, there's, there's two key steps that we look at here. So this is sort of our first step when we're looking at the principle of least privilege. This uh, identifies for us who has access and who should have access. And the second step, which I'm going to um, touch on a little later, is when they do have access, what are they doing and, sh and, and should they be doing that? And that's the other part of least principle, um, the principle of least privilege that we're looking at. So the first thing that we do, and I, I just we call this sort of the, the on-prem-like environment, um, we have, uh, we take a pull from our HR system, and the, this is very much the metadata about employees. So this is things such as um, the level, the length of time they're with the company, have they passed their background check, all that type of metadata. We take a pull from our HR system. We also take a pull from our permission store. Um, our permission store is, is all of the access that is being granted. Um, that's all pulled by our on-prem host. Uh, from a customer perspective, this will be the equivalent of you guys having like a, an EC2 or even a, um, a Lambda function that is basically pulling this information and then uh, putting this into a, a Kinesis Firehose, which then is basically a continuous data pipeline that pushes this information directly into Redshift. Uh, originally, when we built this, we actually used uh, data pipelines instead of Firehose. Um, that was primarily because we had a job that would schedule every two hours to pull this information. When we moved to sort of that near real-time monitoring, we, we, we utilized uh, Kinesis Firehose. So the ETL solution is really the brains of our, our analysis. Um, this is where we uh, perform all of the analysis of the, the business logic and the relationships that we're trying to identify and perform compliance type validation. Uh, this is also where we run a lot of our uh, daily reports and store our daily reports that we're also looking at in addition to the notification, which we'll talk about in a second. So we have a, a job management system uh, that we utilize internally. Again, this is essentially um, EC2 with SWF, um, sorry, simple workflow. Um, we, uh, this basically, this has a list of all of the various jobs that we need to run. Uh, this triggers our data pipeline, which is where all of our business logic is. And the nice thing about data pipeline is, is that it allows for uh, data-driven um, uh, data workflows, which means that we can have jobs that are effectively running to perform test A, then test B, then test C. So this is uh, where all of our, I suppose, uh, really it's our SQL statements are, where we're performing our logical, logical analysis. So this would be where we're running tests such as, um, does this person have access to this particular host in this particular location, at, and they're this particular level? And they're sort of all the checks that we're doing. So when we, when we trigger on that, we effectively have the EC2 work fleet that actually performs the analysis. And then that gets pushed back into Amazon Redshift and also S3. S3 is effectively uh, utilized for our unstructured data store. Um, and that's to allow us to be able to push um, also back into AWS EMR, which I'll talk about a little later. Um, and also it is, um, it's utilized for storing a lot of our daily reports, which um, uh, some of our other internal teams are able to pull from and, and run analysis on. So then we have the continuous monitoring notification solution. So we have Lambda, which is uh, continuously checking for any um, violations in the relationships that we're testing for. And that's running against the Redshift database. And the nice thing about Lambda is, is that uh, effectively the, the, the computation of the actual analysis is happening within, uh, within Redshift, not actually on Lambda itself. And so we have Lambda, it triggers anytime there's a violation. If a violation is actually de detected, uh, it, pushes, um, uh, it pushes a notification via SQS. And within, internally within Amazon, we have an Amazon remedy system that we utilize um, for ticketing. And, and we use ticketing for absolutely everything from I need a chair in my office to this is a very significant event. Um, so we actually um, have an API that uh, ingests the SQS notification um, and uh, auto-creates and cuts a ticket to the, uh, to the owner of the, of the group. Um, and, and what this allows us to do is, is many things. We actually also have a Lambda function that um, is constantly monitoring this notification because sometimes, depending on the violation and how critical it is, we may want to be able to remediate that within minutes. And so if we don't have a response within minutes, we want to be able to trigger an auto-escalate so it goes higher up from a management perspective and, and visibility to make sure that we have someone actually performing remediation. So why not use Lambda for absolutely everything? Um, 
Lambda has um, a runtime limit, run limit of uh, five minutes, um, and so from our ETL solution perspective, we can't actually use Lambda there right now, um, and, and that's why we actually use it just uh, down below. Um, Resource-wise, this one took us about 30 days um, uh, of a resource, and I would say there's probably about two resources. This was, um, this was not done in one full chunk of time. We actually built this over a period of time, so this is about an estimate. Um, and this was a um, system security engineer who actually was building this out for us. So the next, the next step, I just walk through how we identify who and, and, what, and who uh, has access. I'm not going to walk into our analysis of, of what they're actually doing. So um, on a daily basis, we are pulling terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data, of log, um, of log data. Um, our security team uh, built out um, our, our log database on, or our log um, a log store on S3. So we, our team utilizes this as our authoritative source. Um, we use uh, Apache Spark on Amazon EMR. Um, there are two ways that you can, I can actually do this. So uh, you can either have um, a continuous pipe, that is uh, a continuous uh, Spark cluster that's up all the time, or in our case, we just run a daily job uh, whereby we bring Spark up. Um, and it uh, streams all of our logs from the S3 repository. Um, it then uh, decrypts and decompresses this information. And uh, I'm sorry, I've got, a, I've got a, something in my throat. Um, it decrypts the information. It runs the various, uh, it pulls the various metadata that we're interested in. And then it pushes this information out to S3. So the information that we're interested uh, in here is information such as source, uh, who, who they are, what they actually do. Um, and all of that gets then pushed to S3, which we secure with KMS. And then uh, we utilize, once again, Lambda, which triggers any time there's any updates to S3 and pushes it back into that same Redshift, um, Redshift instance that we just talked about a minute ago. So this doesn't quite get across the scale of the analysis that we're doing here. So we're analyzing our logs across our entire environment. So this is across all of our availability zones. This is across all of our regions. So we utilize three... EMR clusters with 21C 3.8 extra large EC2 instances. So this equates to 1,280 worker instances, which are all running in parallel with terabytes of the data, performing all of the analysis around the business logic of the, what we're performing the checks against. Um, and so for one day's worth of logs, we actually um, get through all of that in about one hour. For this, it took us about uh, 10 hours of a, a security, systems uh, security systems engineer to actually build this out for us. Now, some of the lessons learned for this is, um, you know, uh, revoking access of users who haven't used their critical access, their access to critical systems, is a good idea. It's, um, uh, you know, we, I, I think that, you know, in all, this, in all the environments I've seen um, as a, security consultant and at uh, dealing with customers for, with AWS. Um, a lot of times, if you don't do anything about it, permissions get overly permissive. You know, there's too, a lot of people that have access that you're not really sure if they actually really need it. Of course, no one wants to be restricted, so they'll say, yes, it's my, I need it for my, to do my daily job. But um, looking, looking at um, access and revoking access for people who just simply aren't using it is a, is a good practice. So. Um, for you, you, looking at AWS CloudTrail and, and, and the credential usage reports and the service access reports, those are all good ways to like look at access, look at uh, events that are happening to, and matching up with whoever has access so you can then uh, kind of have a good argument for removing access. Removing and trimming that access all the way down to just the, the people who absolutely need access, I think that's really uh, important and can be done um, with these, with these uh, AWS tools. Uh, you can also uh, look at the logins to your EC2 fleet uh, versus the SSH key access list. You know, that's one thing that um, uh, is, is something that as you rotate keys, you can rotate and provide keys to only those people with, with access. So moving on to change management. Again, this is uh, another control everyone here is extremely familiar with. Uh, the objective of the control uh, from an audit perspective is to enable reliable changes that maintain the integrity of the system. Uh, I think everyone out there has experienced the joy of change management where it basically has four gateways um, and you have to go through change, extensive change review board and it can take weeks if not months to actually get changes uh, across. 
Um, as you heard this morning from Andy's keynote speech, in, in 2015 we had 722 features and services that released. And Andy mentioned this morning uh, we're going to close out the end of the year at approximately 1,000 new features and services that are released. And that doesn't even take into account the, the changes that were constantly uh, evolving across all of our services. So. We have to be able to move um, in a very controlled but rapid way. So when we actually built out this environment, we had to uh, very much consider having that uh, continuous, uh, continuous deployment model. So again, this is we have all of the preventative controls in place, uh, which I'll walk through. But and, and Steve Schmidt, if you were part of his uh, keynote yesterday, he talked about it. Uh, but I'll also then touch on from a detective perspective what our team actually does and, and, and performs. So uh, just to get some concepts down, we effectively have a developer. Developer writes code. Um, the code gets committed into our uh, code management system. It's in the smallest possible uh, package that it can be. Um, all of these packages are gathered together in, in, a, in a version set. Um, that version set is then uh, put into our deployment system where uh, it combines into a whole bunch of packages, basically you get combined into what we call an environment. Um, these environments are then deployed onto host classes, and host classes are effectively a, a, a collection of hosts. Um, and this allows us to uh, sort of push once, and it gets pushed out to many of the same resources. So uh, when the, the code package gets, uh, gets pushed, it immediately triggers our QA and code review process. Uh, the, the QA process, it really depends on the impact that you could possibly have, what we call the blast radius of this particular change. Um, if this has a potential for significant blast radius if something goes wrong, uh, there's extensive layers of, of, re of review that are required. At a minimal, for all changes, you need to have um, a peer review, you need to have a more senior review. Um, you will then, in some cases, have a, a bar razor review, so it will be someone independent to your team who's also validating the controls to make sure there's no, uh, the, the, the code to make sure there's no issues. And for all code changes, we, we perform um, uh, security code reviews. At a minimum, they're, they're static uh, code review analysis. Um, and depending, again, on the blast radius of the specific change, it may be a lot more in-depth from a code review perspective. So when, we, when we're actually deploying via our deployment management uh, tool, we use a concept called pipelines. And pipelines allows us to have uh, automated workflows, which allows us to put checks and balances in on the codes where it's not actually the human that's pushing the code. It's actually um, this automated pipeline that is, that is pushing the code into the various environments. So uh, the pipelines will, will push it, for example, into the beta environment. And as a part of that, they'll do, uh, very, it will do various checks, such as was it reviewed? Was it approved? Um, did, a, did the code review actually occur? Um, uh, was there a security check? What, whatever it happens to be, there, there's various checks for, for the environment. We're also able to put in a bake time. So we can also put in, you know, for the beta environment, it must be running for X amount of hours, and that's to ensure that the change is going to operate as we expect it over a certain period of time. For every single change that goes across every single one of these environments, we um, we also have uh, what we call canary alarms, and these are alarms that are constantly uh, monitoring specific thresholds. And as soon as we hit those thresholds, if we go over any of those thresholds, uh, it will trigger um, usually two things. It will trigger an alert to the team that's actually pushing the change. Uh, it will also then uh, trigger a rollback uh, within the automated workflow. There's usually a, there's a, there's an automated rollback which will allow you to roll back to the previous versions. Once we get through the beta and gamma, we're then starting to push these code changes into our production, which is into our regions. And we don't push this out to all regions at once. Once We do this in a very um, controlled manner by pushing out to a specific availability zone in a specific region. We allow it to bake within that particular AZ. Um, if there's no issues, we then move on to the next AZ until we completely ca capture all the AZs, and then we go on to the next region. So that's effectively how we do our, our um, or change pushes on a, on a frequent basis. Um, again, this is, this is all using, I, I realize I'm talking here about sort of what we do from an Amazon perspective, um, but from your perspective, from an AWS perspective, you can also do this using AWS code commit, uh, code deploy, and, and code pipelines. And Chad's going to talk about that a little later. Um, under the hood, uh, when we are talking about our uh, detective controls, um, our team on a, on a, a very frequent basis uh, pulls um, everything from pipelines that was identified as a potential um, flag or a potential issue. Uh, we pull that information, we run analysis against that information, 
Um, we go back to the service teams, validate that uh, all of the uh, flags have been taken into consideration so we can increase the sort of the quality of the controls that we're looking at. Okay, so some of these lessons learned for this, this is one of my, uh, my favorite areas to automate. Um, having had done audits on change management, you know, it can be a, a real mess and, you know, a lot of companies can't quite get it right. Um, and there's like usually, as I was an auditor, I would come back year over year and there's always some kind of change management, uh, uh, recurring change management audit finding. So um, this is a good way of how we've integrated some on-prem, uh, integrated the on-prem environment with, with AWS using these, using these tools, code commit, uh, code deploy, and code pipeline. These are, these are really cool, uh, cool tools that will help automate, you know, code commit, making sure there's an authoritative, authoritative source code repository that like resolves a lot of problems with grabbing code and using code, uh, to making sure that that code that's, that's in the repository is the authoritative code. So code commit, AWS code commit is, is something that can really, uh, help with that. And then, um, code deploy, uh, control, controlled deployments of code to instances. But my favorite is AWS code pipeline, which is like this continuous delivery of the software releases, um, when our auditors came in and saw that we had automated uh, our change management process through pipeline, um, they're just ecstatic because it just takes so much risk out of the, out of the audit and risk out of the environment. So um, that's something that I think that um, is something that is great for in, in AWS, the environment, and it can be used to, for on-prem uh, systems as well. So I realize we're very close to time, so I'm gonna speed up through this one a little bit more. So uh, walking through vulnerability management, which um, we, we are all very aware that this is a, a critical area that we need to focus on. We need to be able to uh, run analysis. We need to be able to um, uh, patch all of our systems. So from an AWS perspective, um, we also, in addition to wanting to run vulnerability scans from a security perspective, um, our team is also responsible for making sure that we run these scans to illustrate compliance with various compliance regimes, uh, such as your PCI or your FedRAMP program, which have continuous scanning requirements. Um, along with these, um, with these programs, we also uh, actually, in a lot of cases, we are required to use third-party scanners. Uh, from an AWS perspective, this is unusual. We usually like to build everything from scratch. Uh, but in this case, we, we have to use the, the third-party scanners. Everyone out there has, has used third-party scanners, I'm sure, in, in some form or another. And you've got uh, various, uh, various things that you've come across. Um, in some cases, for authenticated scans, you have to give uh, security credentials. Uh, you also... Um, uh, you also have a lot of false positives that you may have to parse through and provide evidence to your auditors uh, as to uh, for those false positives. Um, and then in our case, um, what was also impacting us was just generally the scale of our organization. So um, we were running these uh, these scans, and in for uh, 6,000 hosts, it took us about three to four days to run scans, uh, utilizing four of the scanning hosts. Um, and so, you know, we can definitely do that quicker, but it also costs a lot more money because you have to, you have to run scans across this entire environment. Um, and also for us, the amount of false positives that are being returned was significantly high. So we would, we would end up with at times hundreds of thousands um, of lines of false positives. And for every single one of those lines, our auditors expected evidence to validate the fact that they were truly a false positive. That was a huge amount of resource intensive time. So, uh, we actually combined approaches. We took the uh, active scanning approach, um, and we also combined it with a passive scanning approach. So we effectively have this uh, distributed sensors on um, many of our hosts, on all of our hosts. Um, and so what actually happens is we have our distributed uh, distributed sensors which provide back information on the various, uh, the OS and the packages that are installed on all of these hosts. We are then able to take our scanning information and the scanning information basically gives us uh, the feedback that for specific uh, CVE, it's related to package XYZ. Um, by then taking the information from our passive scanning tool, we're able to combine the both of these because we were then able to basically say, we already know that on this host, we already have this package installed. Therefore, this is a false positives. False positive. We were able to walk our auditors through how we actually are doing that 
that analysis. So how we do it is, is we uh, feed all the information into Amazon RDS. Uh, we use Amazon EC2 to be able to uh, run various scripts, which goes, goes through the list, identifies the false positives. Uh, it also identifies for any of the positives what the actually risk, risk rating is for the AWS environment, because the risk rating is very dependent on the controls you're actually operating within your environment. Um, and our auditors have walked through all this and have bought off on, uh, on, the, on the approach that we have here. And then using Amazon Elasticsearch, we were then able to create a dashboard, which we provide back out to our service teams, which really give them, for the first time, true actionable uh, patch management data with, with true SLAs for when they actually remediate that, those type of items. Okay. Um, we had uh, some good lessons learned here. Active scans are costly. Um, false positives are hard to deal with, and, and data, definition, data type definitions matter. This is, this is uh, something that really can be truly optimized in the cloud using these services. Um, and it's, it's something that if you iterate on, you can, it, it, it is a, it's something that's really feasible and can be done and take, takes care of a real a big pain point. So just as a recap, uh, we had these lessons learned on how to uh, use, uh, how we've been using the cloud uh, to handle on-prem and cloud uh, issues and controls, uh, resolving those and automating them. You have that same opportunity with these examples and others, um, and uh, and it it really is something that needs to be iterated on. You need to, as as the tips or advice earlier, we talked about starting over, starting simple, and using an agile methodology to iterate on these and make it so it works for your program, um, and then hire automation engineers. That's that's uh, that's probably our best bit of advice because they tend to be able to figure this stuff out. Uh, we, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, there's some related sessions here uh, that are in the next couple days. There's been some in the past that, uh, that all, also are really good, but these are the ones uh, coming. Uh, remember to fill out your evaluations, and thank you for coming. <laughs>